0: in the midst of a transgender moral panic. Until recently, few people saw what used to be called a sex change. Today, the numbers of people seeking to, quote, transition, particularly among children and teenagers, is becoming a flood. Much of the American medical establishment and the Biden administration claim that immediately yielding to children's feelings that they are not the sex they were born is medically necessary, life-saving care but is the science really settled? Recently, the United Kingdom, France, Norway, and other European countries hit the brakes on immediate gender affirmation in children. Even the World Health Organization, under political pressure to be sure, just admitted that, quote, the evidence base for children and adolescents is limited and variable regarding the longer-term outcomes of gender-affirming care, close quote. The UK's National Health Service concluded that instead of encouraging transition, quote, the clinical approach has to be mindful of the risks of an inappropriate gender transition and the difficulties that children may experience in returning to their original gender role, close quote. Such returns are known generally as detransitioning a phenomenon that receives far too little attention and when it does too often sparks bitter denunciation of detransitioners among radical gender ideologues. My guest today has dedicated herself to raising the public profile of this important issue. Jennifer Lawl has directed, co-written, and co-produced three important documentaries on the subject. The first, Transmission, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender?, Explore the medical ethics of administering puberty blocking and cross sex hormones in children. That film was quickly followed with the release of the detransition diaries, Saving Our Sisters, which told the stories of three young women who transitioned to living life as if they were men, only to realize that they are indeed women. And completing the trilogy, the Just released The Lost Boys, Searching for Manhood in which five young men describe their experiences with gender dysphoria and their ultimate pursuit to find peace in their natural masculine bodies. Among her many accomplishments, Lal is a documentarian and founder of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. Her writings have appeared in various publications, including Cambridge University Press, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Dallas Morning News, and the American Journal of Bioethics. As a field expert, she is routinely interviewed on radio and television, including ABC, CBS, PBS, and NPR. She is also called upon to speak alongside lawmakers and members of the scientific community on various issues of bioethical concern. Jennifer, welcome back to Humanize.
1: Thanks, Leslie. It's always good to see you.
0: Why did you found the Center for Bioethics and Culture?
1: Well, in a previous life, I was a pediatric critical care nurse. And I saw in many years of working in university, academic, clinical hospital settings, the, the corruption, corrosion of medical ethics. And, you know, when I was in graduate school, that was when Donnelly the sheep was cloned. That was when Bill Joy was advancing, you know, nanotechnology and robotics and artificial intelligence and George Bush was tangled up in an embryonic stem cell debate. So I founded the organization to educate the public on um, what was coming, because we all have a stake in what's coming. And at the bottom, bottom of the, the heap was what is the role of proper do no harm medicine?
0: Yeah, and, and of course, uh, the things uh, and issues that uh, you've focused on have shifted over the years because, of course, life changes. Yeah. What got you interested in the issue of transgenderism generally and detransitioning specifically?
1: Well, I was a pediatric critical care nurse, so I was always interested in the health and care of children. Um, before we we as an organization got involved in the transgender debate, we were just happily working in the space of assisted reproductive technology, making babies in the laboratory. And then I learned that before they block the puberty of prepubescent children, or they put them on cross-sex hormones or do surgery, these young children are being offered to freeze and bank their egg and sperm. Ah. And so our worlds collided. And in, in that moment is when we said, as an organization, we have to speak into this space because we have expertise. We know the science and the and the, the lies of reproductive technologies. And we know the lies of these children are being offered. Because if you're a 12-year-old or 14-year-old boy or girl, you can't even imagine if you want children. You're already confused thinking you're born in the wrong body. So what they said, you want to You know, freeze and bank your egg or sperm. You're oh, I don't know. No, I don't think so. I don't know what that means. I don't want children. Um, But we also know the high failure rate. And when you're being told by a medical professional that would you like to preserve your fertility, you think that this works. Why else would a doctor offer you something? And we know from the data that fertility preservation is is a scam.
0: So this whole entire issue, especially with regard to children, is just uh, filled with uh, medical implications and and medical uh, interventions. Some of which work, some of which uh, mutilate. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's quite remarkable that this issue with children, particularly, has only really gotten huge in the last five years. What do you think caused that breakthrough into? into the public's consciousness that so many children are now engaged in this endeavor?
1: Well, I think it was kind of a perfect storm of quite a few things. One was just the erosion of medicine. You know, gone are the days where you had a a professional covenantal relationship with your physician, a trusted relationship, or your doctor would never offer to do anything that would harm you or that was not beneficial to you. So that was you know, like one stool in the leg. Then, you know, we had just a cultural shift with the insanity and the queer theory and gender benders and, and just the nonsensical language around biology. You know, you could be, I don't know how many genders there are now, 72, I can't keep up. You know, it used to be LGB, LG LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus, the whole queer theory s- stuff, and I think we are a people that are um, spend way too much time online. You know, yeah. the internet has played a huge role in, in corrupting our ability to critically think uh, or to question. Um, And, you know, and the whole area of speech has been, you know, you can't say certain things or you're canceled or you lose, you know, you lose your uh, your job.
0: You're accused of being a hater and so forth. I I will talk about that a little bit later, because your film actually uh, one of the expert doctors discusses the role of the Internet and all of this. Uh, But let's talk a little more generally. First, I found The Lost Boys to be very moving. Uh, What kind of research went into producing the film?
1: Well, we talked to a lot of people pre production um either people that are living as transgender people, people that have been what you would call maybe gender critical that have been outspoken in this space and we we really wanted to explore what specifically is different about boys that's not, and there's similarities between the girls and the boys who both think they're confused or born in the wrong body, their life would be better if they were the opposite sex. But boys are different in that, um, like it or not, people who have been critical of this, you know, the, the backdrop of toxic masculinity. You know, boys are bad. Boys are part of the rape culture, misogynistic patriarchy. Boys can't laugh at things that they want to laugh at because they'll be... Criticized, you know, because gone are the days where you could just laugh at funny things. Now it's like, oh, how dare you laugh at that? Um, pornography plays a much bigger role in the lives of young boys. Not that young girls aren't spending way too much time observing and watching porn. Um, and puberty is different for boys. I mean, I wasn't a boy, but you were, you know, you're, you're this goofy little boy and you just, you know, like playing and then all of a sudden you get this. Bang!
0: Yeah, tell me about it.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, you and, get these feelings, and the backdrop yeah. is you're you're a rapist, you're bad, you're toxic, you're you know, and so this is all you know coming into play, and so they go online. Where do kids go? They go online. Oh, you're and I I remember,
0: body. of course, when I was growing up, there wasn't online, uh, but I remember I uh, didn't grow whiskers until relatively late, and I was really upset. Now I can imagine that in the current uh, situation, if I didn't grow whiskers and i'm being told on the internet well maybe that's because you know you're not really a man or a boy that that could have influenced me i don't i hope not but but uh, i always wonder because the world i grew up in was much more innocent and less dangerous in, in this regard
1: yeah. And two two or three of the boys in the film actually experienced, you know, what they consider to be late puberty. You know, all the other boys were getting voice changes and shooting up and getting facial hair. Um and and they did it. And, you know, it's so funny because we you would think we would have uh, progressed, evolved to a point where, you know, you can have boys that are interested in all kinds of things, theater, art, poetry, music, that don't want to play football, that don't want to sit around and drink beer and go to NASCAR. But, you know, we we still are wanting to push people into these stereotypes. And if you don't fit in, you know, as one of the psychiatrists in the film said, if you're not this, this, and this, oh, well, then I'm not a boy. I must be a girl.
0: But what's really remarkable about that is that the hyper stereotype typing is actually in the transgender ideology that that instead if some let's say a girl uh, is more of a tomboy, suddenly no, no, she has to be a, a boy and, yeah. and and you see almost a parodies of uh, sexual stereotypes embraced in this very radical gender ideologue community.
1: Yeah, i forced upon. And what gets me most agita- agitated is doctors willing to medicalize these children instead of yeah. just leaving them be and letting them be however they are. And um, mental health professionals
0: them. pushing them on toward that end instead of saying, well, let's f- find out if there's some underlying issues here. I mean, we've seen, uh, for example, in uh, the UK, a lot of the kids who were De- or who were transitioned were had autism and 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 you also find that uh that uh some of the experts are saying you know there are often underlying mental health issues that go unexplored instead uh ideological mental health people grab this as the answer uh rather than do a full exploration of what's going on with the kid.
1: Exactly. And a lot of the um, social science research shows that these children often have several comorbidities. So they are perhaps bullied. They are on the spectrum of autism in some way. They have some kind of trauma, you know, they're in a, a broken home or, you know, there's drug addiction, there's pornography addiction. So all these things need to be teased out. Yes. in, in helping these children understand these feelings of sometimes hatred of their body.
0: Yes. And and. uh that's really a, a hit on the mental health professions that rather than pursue that exploration, that is actually denigrated almost as if it were uh, some kind of abuse of these kids.
1: Yeah, and I work a lot with um, parents. Who Actually, parents were the ones who came to us after the detransition diaries came out on the girls. We had an influx of parents saying, please make a film about the boys, Nobody's talking about the boys, and this is actually rising. We write about this in our book on the rise of gender dysphoria within young girls, but it's now on the rise in young boys too, um, and that is a ding, I think, on the mental health professionals. A lot of these parents, you know, when they want to seek mental health professionals for their child, for their you know teenager in their home. They want to make sure they're going to go to a a good therapist, right? Not a gender affirming one. And so, oftentimes, they'll ask the therapist, "What books do you recommend we read?" Because that's a tell on the philosophy of the the therapist, you know. Because if the, the the you know the therapist refers you to, you know, all these queer theory kind of books, gender bender, and whatnot. You know, you know this is not going to be a therapist. And they live in fear of losing their children. The CPS is going to show up and go, you did it from your children. We're removing them from your home and your care.
0: Yeah, and, and some states like and, California are actually making that a part of the law. Yeah. Tell us about the young men you interviewed.
1: Well, there's five of them, um, and all three of them did medic- what I would call medicalization. So they took estrogen. You know they changed their names, they changed their pronouns to female pronouns, female names they dressed a particular way to you know pretend to be women, and two of the young men uh did the full on bottom surgery, so they had you know their penises removed, their testicles removed, and you know the neo vagina whatever the heck that is um uh, put in. <laughs> Um, so those two gentlemen, of course, live with, you know, you talk about the patient for life, right? Yeah. You know, they will live, they will live with forever, you know, complications of those, those kinds of, you know, really butcherous ch- surgeries.
0: And butcherous is a good <laughs> word. Uh, as I listened to the young men, the two young men who experienced that, what they described is appalling.
1: Yeah. And we had to really tone it down for the film. Um, because for one, we wanted to put it out. It's free on YouTube, and you know, if it's too graphic, it gets pulled. It gets flagged yeah. for you know, we, you know, content. And and part of me says rightfully so because I want you know content to be kind of toned out. But yeah, it was you know, the one gentleman describes how the nurse came in with a basically a ziploc bag with his testicles and, them. You know, showed oh. him. Yeah. You know, I mean, every man in the audience is kind of reaches and grabs for their crotch when he, when he does that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a sort of primal look, primal response. Um,
0: <laughs> oh, I'm not even going to say anything. Yeah. Is there a common theme about what led these men to believe they were female?
1: Um, I don't. I, I don't think so. What one of the young men said, and it didn't, it, may, it, it ended up on the cutting room floor, which you always hate as a filmmaker, but he said, boys are different and they, they get into this fast, but they get out of it fast. Mm. So they have a much, you know, quicker, oh, I'm a girl, I'm going to rush off and do that. And then when they have their epiphany, they, they just say, that's it. I'm no more hormones. I'm, you know, call me Bob, you know, I'm going to dress as a man. Um, but yeah, because, you know, some of them were just the more sensitive type, and they grew up in home environments that had heavy men do this. You know, one of the young men talks about when he was a little boy just helping his mom carry his purse, her purse. He thought he was being kind. He was ridiculed really by family members who said, you know, shame on you. Boys don't carry purses. You know, so he had those messages. One boy had horrible drug and alcohol addiction and pornography addiction, um, and he never got help for that. You know, he even says, you know, a good therapist would have said, let's get you sober first. Yeah. It's yeah. Over. And, and then we can revisit, you know, this feeling of your body. Um So but I don't think there was any one particular, um, you know, clearly mental health was a problem. Yeah. I guess I would say mental health if I had to pick one, you know, either depression or severe, you know, people that were diagnosed with mental health problems and on medication.
0: <laughs> we, we've touched on this already, but let's uh, get a little more detailed. Uh, what uh, role does social media and peer pressure play in all of this?
1: Yeah, it's, it's huge. I mean, if I could say one thing, one bit of advice to parents raising kids right now is get your kids outside, get them off the of laptops, get them off screens. Don't let them have, you know, smartphones as young kids. Make sure that they're not consuming content, you know, in un- closed doors, you know, in their bedrooms. Um, it's just horrible. And, I you know, I think the peer pressure, maybe even more worrisome, is the grooming. And we do address grooming of young right. men. Um, and that certainly happens with young girls, too. But they get into these online chat rooms with older predatory men. Who, you know, say, send me pictures of you, you know, dressed up like a girl. And, you know, I mean, there's there's that nature, which isn't, you know, the old school peer pressure, you know, you want to be the cool kid and, you know, you have to comb your hair a certain way and, you know, have a muscle car. Um, but it's more of that online predatory. Um, yeah. One of
0: the doctors, at least one of them that you interviewed, because you interview the men, the young men, uh, and you also interview uh, three or four uh, medical experts. Yes. in this field. And and one of them, as I recall, was saying grooming is a huge part of this.
1: It is. And and that happens online. You know, so back yeah. to the internet. So that you know, that connects the two. Yeah. Yeah. And and we did interview actually a father too, who has a, you know, a trans identifying son. And his son fell through the rut down the rabbit hole during COVID because all of a sudden school was locked down. The school gave him his own laptop. He never had a laptop of his own. Mm-hmm. And so he had to be online because you're in school all day in your home during COVID lockdowns. And then his father said at one point they would hear him in the middle of the night. He was online all night long because he'd never had this technology. Um, so, you know, available. And the dad said at night, we would just have to turn off our internet. Yeah. So which is itself,
0: You know, the, the online thing itself can be an addiction. Uh, let's go, let's talk just very quickly. Um, most people probably know the answers to these, but just in case, um, what is, uh, we're talking about what's called, quote, gender affirming care, close quote. Uh, what is social affirmation?
1: Well, it would be uh, agreeing to a name change. So Wesley all of a sudden becomes Susie, um, pronoun changes, agreeing to, you know, being able to dress a particular way so that you could present as the opposite sex um so all those kind of things would be the social aspect of it and And why is that
0: harmful if it makes the kid feel better
1: well because it 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 starts to reinforce the lie you know i mean it's 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 affirming a lie it's affirming a a non-biological reality if you agree to those you know steps and
0: you're you're pushing them down the path towards medical uh, interventions correct
1: yeah, you're, you're not saying, I think what parents should say is, I understand you're feeling distressed. Let's talk about it. Not, oh yeah, okay, I'll call you Susie so you'll be more comfortable. Just, I understand you're feeling this way. Validate the feelings, you know, talk, speak truth into it. You know, I was there the day you were born. You know, you're a little, you're a little baby boy. You've always been my son. You know, you're, you're so and so's brother. Um, and you know, you can't, i don't think you i don't think that's helpful to concede and go along with social transition yeah
0: so the issue is to be truthful but also be loving
1: yes yeah
0: yeah uh and so then often after social transitioning you get to medical transitioning what is the purpose of medical transitioning such as puberty blocking or cross hormone injections
1: well, I thought, you know, we interviewed Dr. Quentin Van Meter in our transmission film, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender? And he had a great soundbite where he talked about um, the push is so that you can you can um, stop the development, the feature developments. Um, so, so, for example, like Caitlin Jenner, Bruce Jenner, right? He would have loved probably to have had his puberty block so he wouldn't have size 12 feet in big man hands, um, and, a, and a firm jaw. You know, so a lot of that just, um, if you stop the puberty, that development that's going to be, you know, bone development, growth stuff is going to be. It's so
0: that you won't look masculine if you're a boy, and you won't look feminine if you're a girl, and to prevent the development of secondary sex characteristics.
1: It's all about passing.
0: Yeah, right? yeah.
1: You know, it's all about passing, and how, how better to help a child pass, in this delusion than to start early
0: and women young girls have uh, uh pubescent girls have a chest binder so that you can't see their bust and so forth right
1: and they even have you know like chloe cole for example when she had her double mastectomy she's a young girl in california that had a double mastectomy as a young teenager um she had you know Bone surgery. They grind down the bones to do make the chest look more masculine than a, a female chest. So it's not just removing the breasts, but actually shaving the bones. Like one of them the young men in our lost voice film was gonna have um Adam's apple surgery, you know, to grind down so he could pass better. So you won't see big, the
0: Adam's apple in the neck, yeah. and of course that would affect his vocal abilities and so forth.
1: Yeah, and they have facial feminization surgery to change the bone structure to make it more feminine and more soft. In
0: in children who are still developing, who are still growing.
1: Yeah, and and those, those types of surgery would probably come later because the child is still growing. But it's all on that path of getting this child to be able to be an adult and pass.
0: And All then pushing toward, uh, potentially, as, as some of the two of the uh, men in your film had, genital uh, removal and reconstruction. Um, we're told that never happens in minors, but I don't think that's true, is it?
1: It's not true. And we've had several states, um, and, you know, Ohio, we just had a, a big victory in Ohio with um uh, Uh, the SAFE Act, which is, you know, not allowing children to have these surgeries, you know, they were able to prove that those surgeries were happening in state. And you'll often hear legislators say, oh, it's not happening here. And of course, you know, the parents and the people that are critical of this, uh, you know, are quick to show the receipts. Oh, yes, it is. It is happening there. You know, we have three big lawsuits in against Kaiser Permanente in California. You know, Chloe was a minor. I think she was 14 or 15 when she had her double mastectomy.
0: Yeah, these uh, interventions are sometimes told uh, the families that it's reversible, uh, no. but most of them are not, are they? When They're it's not. medical,
1: yeah. Well, and, and it gets me back to the fertility preservation. We, we they used to say, "Oh, we we don't they don't lose their fertility. Their fertility isn't harmed." And then we kind of went, "Well, then why are you offering fertility preservation?" Because <laughs> <Yeah>. fertility. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, you know, you, you, you know, when you think of normal human development, you're going through, you know, puberty. Right. And those are very important things that are happening for your whole body during puberty. You know, brain development, you know, not, not just physical, you know, your mental bone. And if you block that, you stunt that. And if you just say, OK, after we blocked your puberty for two or three years, we'll just turn it back on. doesn't work that way. That's no, right, you've and you've lost, lost those two or three years. Yes, you've lost them. And then you go, okay, great, you have a, a 19-year-old that you're going to put through puberty now as a 19-year-old. Or, it doesn't work that way. And, and if, certainly, you,
0: if you mix uh, puberty blocking and um, hormone cross-hormones like testosterone to girls, doesn't that cause sterilization?
1: It it definitely causes sterilization or in men too. Yeah. You know, to put men on high dose estrogen, you know, does, is not healthy on the testicles and in the, and in the sperm production. And the fact that these people have been saying that it is reversible is just bonkers. You know, you can't reverse a double mastectomy. You can't reverse a neovagina or a phalloplasty. Um, and it, the powerful effects of high dose wrong sex cross those hormones in a male or female body wreak havoc on all kinds of systems.
0: One Um, of the young men that uh, you interviewed in the film said that by the, the reason he decided to have his genitals removed is that the medical interventions had already caused him total sexual dysfunction, that he couldn't have an orgasm and he couldn't get aroused. And so he thought, well, why not?
1: Why not? And, And it was funny because he's the gentleman that actually, um, was, is pushed. They basically said, you've been in the program, the gender clinic program for long enough. If you're not going to have the surgery, then we're going to, you know, release you from the program. Um, so there was this kind of like, okay, they're going to release me from this program of, of taking care of me with my cross sex hormones because I'm, I'm not agreeing to, to the surgery and I've lost all my sexual function. Okay. I'll just do it. And then the other young man who had the, um, the neo vagina, he was like being wheeled in. To the operating room he had to leave Norway to go to Thailand for his surgery, and he was being wheeled in and he can't remember if he said it out loud or if he just said it in his brain, but it was somebody, please help me stop me and then yeah. he says and the next thing I knew I woke up in the you know recovery room and the, the, the surgery had been done
0: yeah that's 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 really tragic when you when you think about it and these uh, young men um, are going to especially the ones who had that surgery are going to have to live with the not only the regret, but as you mentioned earlier, the terrible medical complications, being a lifelong patient. Uh, I, I believe they said there's continual pain, uh, there's continual need to uh, have uh, doctor visits and, and infections and this kind of thing.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and it's presented as so, oh, this is life-protecting. And it's, it's, it's such a uh, fraud, it seems to me.
1: Yeah, and then one gentleman, and other people have spoken of this that are male or you know, they have trouble just urinating. Yeah. You know, just simple things you just take for granted.
0: Why is there so much hostility among gen- transgender activists to detransitioners if what matters is how we self-identify? I mean, the whole point of gender ideology is that everything becomes subjective. It is how I feel. And we are supposed to honor how people feel inside about their sexuality, about their, their gender choices and so forth. But apparently that's a one way street. If somebody decides, well, you know what? I was, I was always a boy and not a girl. And yet when they engage in the quote, de-transitioning, one of your uh, interviewees calls it recovery. Uh, the, there are death threats, there are hostility, there are tried, uh, efforts to shut them down from speaking on college campuses, and so forth. Why do you think there is such intense anger if feelings is supposed to be the end all and be all?
1: Well, I mean, first we were talking about a group of people that we already acknowledge have a lot of underlying mental health issues. So these are just not normally healthy people mentally. Um, so they do appear to be at times quite unhinged and quite aggressive and angry. Uh, two, they just hate somebody not um, celebrating them. You know, it's not good to just live and let live, right? Which is right. what we kind of want, just live and let live. No, you need to celebrate us and you need to allow us, you need to accommodate us and we will have zero tolerance for, which is why you see them. Why do they want to be in? women's sports. Why do they want to be in women's bathrooms and women's prisons? It's so that they're not happy. Just, you know, which I think most society, society leaving children out of it, but adults, if you just want to do your thing, dress this way, call yourself, whatever. Now I draw the line. I don't think even physicians should be doing surgeries like this on adults. Cause I do think these people are unwell mentally um, and that good proper medicine doesn't chop off healthy genitalia. healthy reproductive organs but i just think we're dealing with a a largely unwell population and an attitude of we have to celebrate whatever the decadence is it does i don't think it's just limited to um to this space there's a lot of decadence going on and we have you know just the minorly attracted adults yeah we have we have to celebrate this you know versus being you know morally reprehensible that kind of person you know we're not gonna but they want to be celebrated
0: you know, when when uh, a child tells their parents that they think they're the wrong sex, they're born in the wrong body, so-called, that is a tremendous blow to family cohesion. Uh, have you uh, discussed uh, that issue with family members of children who either transitioned and stayed that way or detransitioned?
1: Yes, we have. It's never really made it into any of our films, but, you know, it does. It wrecks havoc on the whole family. Um, it causes strain, as you can imagine, between husbands and wives. Um, it causes strain with other siblings. You know, if all of a sudden your brother that you've known your whole life is all of a sudden now your sister. Um, and you have to kind of go along with that. It causes strain in um, extended family where, it, you know, one of the mothers in Transmission talked about how, Everybody was against her. Her her family members were saying, you need to affirm your child. You need to affirm your child. The school was against her. The doctor was against her. You know, so that it just causes all kinds of stress, Um, especially, like I said, under the cloud of fear of losing your child, that CPS is going to come knock on your door and remove your child from your care.
0: And it can lead to divorce and and, uh, Mm -hmm. where the non-affirming, quote-unquote, parent loses custody solely for that reason
1: we have a a case like that in california ted hudako he has lost custody of his one son because he won't affirm that his son is now his daughter and he didn't lose custody of his other son so he's not an unfit parent so he can see one of his children who was born a boy who is a boy you know fine but no you're not going to be able to see this child because you are harming and hurtful to this now girl in quotes
0: yeah, this this whole uh, issue leads to so many paradoxes. For example, uh, government requires now uh, insurance companies uh, to cover transition services, medical services. Uh, often, uh, uh, government benefits will cover transition services. But when somebody wants to detransition, which may take medical interventions, Often there's no insurance coverage, there's no government benefits, and so you don't have uh, an equality of uh, approach there for people who are trying to, let's say, let's even just assuming they're trying to be true to their true selves, and you don't even have uh, uh, an equality of ability to access help to do that.
1: Yeah. And one of the young women in the detransition diaries speaks to that and the fact that she was able to get her double mastectomy covered by her insurance. But when she inquired about reconstructive surgery of her breast, she was told that it was not covered. Um, and, you know, and, and not only is insurance or physicians there to help these people, when you have complicated um, uh, side effects, complications of these butcherous surgeries, it's hard finding doctors that know how to manage that care because we've not seen this. We're not, yes. you know, we don't know how to help a man who's had his, you know, testicles and his penis removed and had a fake vagina created. I'm like, I don't know. This is the first time I've ever dealt with a patient like this. So they are, you know, dealing with doctors who maybe want to help them, um, but feel, you know, inept. Uh,
0: one of your interviewees, Um, says there's a distinction to be made between desisting and detransitioning, which I thought I hadn't heard that term desisting before, but I like that. Uh, Describe what he was talking about there.
1: Well, what they refer to when they say desister is somebody who um, changed their pronouns, dressed a certain way, changed their name, cut their hair, but they never took any medical intervention. So they never took cross-sex hormones. They never did any surgery. So it was just all that social presenting stuff. Um, And then they stopped. So that's a desister, you know, all the way up to, but no medical intervention.
0: So they end up with uh, a normal future because they have not actually been interfered with in terms of medical uh, interventions and procedures.
1: Correct. It's all this, all of a sudden now they dress a particular way, you know, and change their name back. And right, trust and beaters. then
0: the detransitioner is
1: people that have medicalized. Not, um, and I just make the distinction between medicalization and surgical intervention because med- some just took estrogen. So three of the young men in our film only took estrogen and then stopped, so they detransition. And two of the men took estrogen and had the surgery and then stopped. So, but I think. It's important to, as far as language, and one of the gentlemen speaks to this. I didn't transition, and I didn't de-transition because I could never become a woman, and I could never go back to being a man because I was always a man. Um, but I, I use the language just because it's the language that we use to talk about what we're talking about, and then people know what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I, 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 you know, I write about this issue quite a bit, and so, and I use the term gender affirming care. I tend to put it in quotes, uh, or so-called. Gender affirming care, uh, and people yell at me. You can't yield to that lexicon, but you have to, in the sense that it is now how people describe these procedures, and we have to be able to identify what it is that we're discussing.
1: Yeah, and it, you know, I want to have a a voice in the public square. I want to speak in language in terms that people will understand. I don't want to speak in polemic terms. I don't want to go out there and say. Oh, my God! This is butcherous mutilation um you know barbaric intervention because you know people wouldn't hear wouldn't hear me but um but i you know i like i like you, I put a lot of things I say in quotes just because i'm I'm using the language, but my quotes are saying but i don't I don't believe you can change sex
0: you <laughs> um you you talk a lot about this you know around the world actually um what kind of uh Experiences have you had as an advocate against uh, these kinds of interventions in children?
1: Well, whenever I do speak, I'm at conferences that have invited me, so these are friendly environments. Um, so I haven't had that kind of hostility. I have attended a, a public event hosted by Kelly J. Keene, who's quite a you know prominent figure out of the United Kingdom that runs her "Let Women Speak" campaigns, where she just shows up and with a microphone lets women speak. And, you know, I was at the Let Women Speak campaign in New York City, which was in front of the um, uh, city hall. And I, it was the first time in my life where I thought, I'm not making it out of here alive. I'd never seen so much violence and vitriol. Um, we probably had 60 to 70 New York police men guarding us trying to keep this. I mean, We were on, you know. 20 feet of sidewalk in front of city hall with a little metal barricade. And it was absolutely like vicious, vile, spitting, throwing stuff at us, you know, ripping their shirts up open to show their double mastectomy scars. And, you know, it was just vile.
0: It's, um, it, it's a sign of a movement that doesn't believe it can prevail through normal persuasion.
1: Yeah, and, and solid good arguments. And, and we know they don't have them. I mean, we this, you know, the jig is up. We saw what the World Health Organization did what last week, um, you know, with just, just saying, oh, we, the science isn't settled. You know, we have many uh, states that are passing laws that say we're not going to do this in our state. Uh, we saw, you know, Washington University realized recently closed down their gender clinic because they were concerned for liability for their physicians that practice, in quotes, gender affirming care. Um, so it's hard for them to make good arguments.
0: Which brings up an interesting point. Uh, we have seen Northern Europe and Western Europe, UK, Denmark, Norway, Finland, France, uh, Sweden turning away from this approach, even though they had initially practiced it. in uh, fact that one of the, uh, original proponents of this out of Finland, a psychiatrist, Basically said, no, this is wrong and this is dangerous. These are not Bible Belt countries. I mean, we're <laughs> often told, oh, this is just about uh, you know fundamentalist Christianity and you know, et cetera, et cetera. These are very socially progressive countries, and it strikes me that they have come to the realization that wait a second, we were in this moral panic, this rush, based on some pretty flimsy um, uh, studies out of the Netherlands in particular. And even the Netherlands is backing off. yet that doesn't seem to have translated into the American uh, discourse. The New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, and others have written have published article after article after article in which they uh, assert unequivocally that quote, gender affirming Claire close quote, is medically necessary and life-saving, and don't even mention how these other countries and uh, the british uh, medical journal and, and other other uh, studies and uh, periodicals have said wait a second this isn't right science requires discourse and it seems to me that what is happening In this country, of all countries, is that discourse is being stifled by the Biden administration. And I'm not being partisan, it's just the studies that, I mean, it's the policies they're trying to force through regulations out of health and human services in the uh, um, AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, WPATH, which is an ideological quote, medical, close quote, association about this issue. Why is it so hard to break through in this country when other more liberal countries actually are, are finding their way to a more rational approach?
1: Well, I think, um, I think we'll catch up. I think this is, I always tell people, this is an issue that we will see one in our, our day. And you and I, Wesley, are getting up there in our years <laughs> of our day. <laughs> I put me in there with you. <laughs> um, I think this is a winnable issue because we know what the science shows, and that and that is what prompted a lot of the changes in Europe. Was they actually would look at evidence based medicine? They'd actually, you know, the Swedish people who were very very progressive and first on this bus, you know, to transition people, did the research and showed, you know, the the lie is that this, you know. They're not going to kill themselves if we don't allow them to transition because they actually did the research. They followed these people and they found out years after they had transitioned, they still were killing themselves because we didn't deal with the mental health issues. You know, t- the United Kingdom had the CAST report, an independent true report that got in there and looked at what are we really doing here? So I think in the United States, because we're you know, you're a lawyer, we're more litigious. Um, I think what's going to happen in the U.S., it will be lawsuits and whistleblowers. And we talk about this in our book, the Detransition Diaries book that comes out next month. We'll I'm plug. about to talk to you about that. <laughs> so we talk about how how is this all end? And I think whistleblowers, and we have three now in the U.S., a, a, a Texas gentleman who's a physician, and then uh, Jamie Reed, who was a whistleblower at Washington University and worked in their gender clinic. Um, and one other I'm blanking on. So it will be whistleblowers and lawsuits. And and it was the lawsuits that got Washington University to close down their uh, gender clinic.
0: And I think the threat of lawsuits uh, got Tulane uh, also to to shut down mm -hmm. their clinic. Uh, I can tell you, as somebody who has had close association with, quote, trial lawyers, close quote, (laughs) uh, they tend to be uh, ideologically on the left. But if the money begins to present itself, you're going to see ads on TV like we now see for asbestos litigation. Mm
1: Have you been harmed by, you know, that's right. Mutilation surgery.
0: That's right. And (laughs) it could, it could, it could cause, uh, I think Chloe Cole's uh, lawsuit, uh, is really important against Kaiser in California. Uh, as I recall, and obviously I don't know if she's, what she's saying is true, but she, I saw her give a presentation. And this is a, a woman, uh, who, uh, for the listeners, um, began to have gender confusion about age 12 or 13 was put on the fast track of, uh, for social and then medical affirmation. The doctors told her parents that if they didn't put her on this track, she would commit suicide. And I, she said at this presentation, I was never suicidal. <laughs> and, and then at age 15, she had the double mastectomy. And then around age 18, she suddenly realized, wait a second, I'm not a male. And, uh, so this whole idea of you, uh, if, uh, if you don't do this, because parents are put in a really rock between a rock and a hard place, child is adamant, perhaps that they, they want to be the other sex. And the doctor saying, if you don't go along with this, they'll commit suicide. And then the, the public officials in, in very social, uh, politically progressive states might be saying, if you don't go along with this, we'll take your child out of your home. It makes for a very difficult circumstances for the family.
1: It's really difficult. And, you know, I've interviewed uh, Chloe and she's a classic example. She was a young kid. She had way too much, way too much by her own words, unsupervised Internet time. She, you know, came across pornography that a young girl should never, ever find. And and the more she was online, the more the algorithms served her up trans stuff, you know, because they watch what you're watching. And then yeah. she found herself in these rabbit holes in these com- these community groups. I've talked with a superintendent of a, a Catholic high school out in the Bay Area. I'm not Catholic, but he called me because he knows I work in this area. He said, "What do we do? We can't. We have students coming to our Catholic school that aren't Catholic. That that happens. Um, but we have now. We have parents who say, you know, my my son is now a girl. You need to refer to him with these pronouns. And he's like, we we are told that we don't affirm." then we will have a mass suicide problem in our school. And then nobody will send their kids to your private school because they'll go, well, kids that go to that school just all kill themselves. You know, so he was like, how do we navigate? How do we be faithful to the teachings of our faith tradition? How do we run a you know, Catholic school um, when, you know, and I'm like, well, I guess you either have to stand firm or you have to say you can only be a student here if you sign and agree to our, whatever our statement is.
0: Yeah, there's an awful lot of emotional manipulation and blackmail in this issue. Yes. And yeah. and it's cruelty. It's it's uh, to to interfere with normal familial relations the way we see. And, uh, you know, I've seen videos of some of these, I won't call them groomers, but let's say proselytizers for transgender uh, transitions in uh, childhood. Basically, I I saw one fellow saying, and he was wearing um, eye makeup and so forth and batting his eyes at the camera and saying, you don't have to have a family. I'll be your family. And I was thinking, that is so insidious Mm -hmm. to create this ideal, perhaps, of, oh, this this man will care for me and, and accept me as I am. And my parents are saying, I can't do this. It interferes with the most basic relationships that that humans have
1: yeah, and the term is glitter family in the trans world this this new family says come and live here we understand you we will support you we will and they call that the glitter family because they just love bomb them they just glitter bomb them with all this you know love and also in these in these groups online this is where they're groomed tell your parents you have to do this or you'll kill yourself so, so they're, they're
0: told to do they're
1: that. They're told. They're given the talking points. This is yeah. what you need to do. This is what you need to say. And then you'll be able to do this. And you'll, and here, oh, by the way, is your glitter family. You can come live with us. It's just <laughs> demonic.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, let's talk. Uh, we're almost out of time here, but I do want to mention uh, that you have a new book coming out based on uh, your previous film, The Detransition Diaries. Uh, tell us about the book and, and what's in the book that might not have been in the film.
1: Well, first, thank you for blurbing it because one of our great <laughs> endorsements came from you. will um, we, well, we start out with a, a, a good comprehensive history of who are the early actors, um, you know, because this doesn't come out of the blue. I mean, deviant men have been at play for a long time. You know, Harry Benjamin, who founded WPA, John Money, Alfred Kinsey, you know, all these people that were blurring, um, you know, right sexual relationships and healthy. What is healthy sexuality? And so we sort of look at who are these big actors. Then we look at four big moments in time where medicine went bad. You know, we look at Nuremberg and what happened in the, you know, the, the research experiments that were done. We look at Tuskegee, we look at the lobotomies and we end with looking at forced sterilization programs across the United States, you know, the whole eugenics movement. And we look at those four times and we look at what what helped to write those. You know, a lot of times it was lawsuits. And it was whistleblowers, you know, coming forward and, you know, that got medicine back on track. Then we launch into stories and we tell men's stories and women's stories. Our editor asked it was just going to be the women's stories. But then when the editors caught wind that we were making The Lost Boys, they said, please include some men's stories to make the book more you know, interesting to other people. And then we sort of end with why is this happening more often in in girls? And, you know, how are we going to how are we going to get out of this?
0: Yeah. but When you say happening more often in girls, uh, it used to be pretty much exclusively a boy phenomenon. And then a few years ago, suddenly there was an explosion of girls believing that they were boys. And uh, what's even more disturbing to me in some regards is that girls will actually have, as Chloe Cole did, surgeries far earlier and more likely than boys.
1: Yeah. And for girls, part of it is girls seem to be naturally more prone to these. You know, girls have bulimia and anorexia more than boys, not exclusively, but more so girls cut. You know, girls are much more interested in how do I look? You know, I know it's on the rise men having plastic surgery, but, you know, it used to just be women that were more concerned with their physical and girls run in packs. Yeah, they're social creatures. Well, Debbie's doing this. Well, then I've got to do this and I've got to do this. And one of the young girls in, in, um, uh, detransition diaries, you know, she was a white, you know, privileged girl. And she, you know, was like low man on the totem pole because she wasn't a person of color. She wasn't a, you know, an immigrant. She wasn't, you know, one of the oppressed groups, you know, the whole critical race theory. She wasn't oppressed. So she figured out quick, oh, I'll change my pronouns. And then she went up a notch. She got some more social currency. And then you know I'll I'll go on a testosterone. Oh, more social currency. Oh, I'll yeah. have surgery. You know. So she and, realized- and
0: with teachers and teachers affirming that and embracing it and and yeah. saying it, uh, often, don't tell your parents. We won't tell your parents. You don't tell your parents. Yeah. You'll be Susie at school, even if you're Johnny at home. Uh, very insidious uh, breaking with uh, familial relationships. I know someone. Just this is an anecdote. But uh, somebody who's uh, uh, is very Christian uh, and uh, who homeschooled his son, uh, and there was a homeschool uh, group of about twelve kids, and this stuff seeps under the doorways and through the keyholes because of these twelve kids. He told me that his uh, son has now decided that uh, she's that he's ad- his daughter. Um, and of these 12 kids who all were raised in conservative, uh, what's sometimes called normie, N-O-R-M-I-E homes, nine have actually, uh, engaged this issue, which is probably higher than normal, but it's still quite shocking and quite profound. And that my friend's family, uh, has been shattered, not just, I mean, the, uh, young man was an adult when he made this announcement. But the minor children at home are now having to deal with the issue that their brother wants them to call the brother their sister.
1: Yeah. Well, we're living in a time where one t- teenager or children coming into adulthood are, you know, rebellious. They want to rebel against their parents. You know, sometimes it's this you know, they got tattoos and pierced their ears and, you know, went emo or goth or whatever. But now they're rebelling in a way that's literally harmful, long term harmful to their body. You yeah, know, you, you might can't
0: rebelling. say you're going through a phase and yeah. then, and then you come out of the phase and, and, and everything's okay. This is a severe, life changing experience.
1: Yeah. And encouraged by, professionals who ought to know better
0: when does the book come out and when is when can people order it
1: it's already available on amazon um for pre-order and it comes out february 14th which i remember because it's valentine's day
0: very good. Uh, and we're recording this on uh, January 25th, 2024. So hopefully two years from now, if people are listening to this podcast, they'll know that the book is already out.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if I could just put in a little plug, like, Lost Voice was released 10 days ago, and yep. we've had like over 32,000 views, and it's already available in three languages.
0: Oh, that, congratulations.
1: People, people come out of the woodwork and say, quickly, can we subtitle your film? So it's available in Polish and Spanish and in English, and we expect many more languages will come very soon. So we're I think, pleased with the with the response.
0: I think one of the things that you've done quite well uh, throughout your career in, in terms of bioethical advocacy is you turn to uh, media, such as film, because a lot of people don't read books anymore. Uh, but people do uh, watch YouTube videos. Uh, and uh, so all they they can go to the uh, CBC's website and get these movies for free, right? And they can yeah, access it.
1: They're, they're all free. And I still remember you and I were in a car somewhere driving to speak at some conference. And you helped me, gave me the title of our first film explication.
0: <laughs> yeah, I did and do I, that, didn't I? Yeah.
1: But yeah people yeah. you know don't I don't want my publisher to hear this because people don't naturally want to read books
0: well <laughs> you know I'm, a, I'm an author too but it's yeah. just a reality that people do read books but not as many as used to that's all
1: yeah and you know we we try to sell our movies but people want free content. So yeah. all of our all of our films are free on YouTube. We raise the money to make them, and then we just put them out for free.
0: Yeah, and the point is to get the message out. I mean, exactly. it's, you're not there to make money out of it. You're there to get the message out and to try to make a better world. Exactly. So. Well, what next for Jennifer Lowell?
1: Well, I'm going to be going to Rome in April and in May to speak at two different conferences because they're about to do a really good legislative act in the surrogacy debate.
0: Yeah, so, which you're also involved in, and, and we can talk about another time. Well, May you know, I su- if,
1: you're, if you're transgender and you have your uterus removed and you want to have a baby, you'll have to have a surrogate.
0: No, you'll have a uterus transplant,
1: <laughs> which that's they're it.
0: talking about. Yeah. A- um, I would suggest that perhaps if you want to do a fourth film, do one on family impact. Yeah. Because I think that's a really under... Discussed issue that it, the the trauma and the calamity that befalls families when this issue explodes in their midst.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm much more in the bio bio space, and family dynamics isn't bioethics. It's
0: family. All right. <laughs> Just a thought. Just a Somebody thought. Else, anyway,
1: another another listener can make that movie.
0: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> See, never tell anybody else how to be creative. <laughs> Well, Jennifer, thank you very much for being with us, and we'll talk to you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.